Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the marketing podcast for marketers, founders, and tech people who are just sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. So we talked a few times in this podcast about building a brand and why it's so important, uh, but my guests today believe that we are doing it completely wrong, um, and because we are focusing on useless data instead of great customer experience. And I tend to agree with my guest, so that's going to be a fun conversation. Um, and he has some very bold solutions and ideas to actually counter that and create a great uh, experience, a great brand, um, by really giving the control back uh, to users, customers, and people alike, which is quite interesting. So I can't wait to dive into those subjects. So my guest today is the author of Social Media is Bullshit, uh, which is a book, and Privacy and How We Get It Back. Um, those are the two books that he wrote. Uh, he has debated the ambassador to Pakistan at the United Nations, traveled all over the world from Moscow to Boston to discuss the myth of internet marketing, and is a former branding and word of mouth marketing consultant. And finally, he's also the writer of a comic book series called Vengeance Nevada, available on comixology.com. So BJ Mandelson, welcome aboard. Thank you so much for having me. Right. Instead of doing the, the startup uh, podcast intro that every other podcast interview guest will, will do, uh, let's dive in into in, an interesting subject straight away uh, instead of going around the topic, shall we? So you wrote a book in 2012 and you said that you've been right about a lot of things that happened since then um, and seven years or eight, six years since since this book has been written, is a long time in the internet world. So what were you right about in this book? I think Snapchat gives us a great example of that, where it talked about the tech companies exaggerating their statistics and not quite divulging what it means to be a daily active user, a monthly active user, uh, and doing basically whatever it takes to get you to use their platform, which may or may not be worth your time or money. And so with Snapchat, we saw a lawsuit in the run-up to their IPO where people that had worked at the company and then left were saying, your numbers are bullshit. Like You don't even define how many people you actually have. Uh, and of the people you have, it's not entirely clear how you count them. And so uh, there's a lot of this myth and hype which the book works to spell. And that, was, that to me is like the, the biggest thing. You know, We talk about other stuff here in the United States right now. We're obsessed with um, alleged Russian interference in the 2016 election and the use of Facebook to do that. But uh, a lot of us don't stop and consider that the amount of traffic on the internet, more than half of it is fake or it's generated by bots in the first place. And most Facebook ads go unseen. And yet we tend to think of social media as magic. And so uh, those are two recent examples since the book has come out that I think has kind of proven me right. So, um, Yes, you talked about this this interference and this 50% of, of bot traffic. I remember talking to Bob Hoffman, uh, the ad contrarian on this podcast, and he mentioned something very similar. One of the stats right now, we are recording this episode in March uh, of 2018. Do you have any recent stats around uh, the quality of, of traffic? Uh, and and uh, like what's the percentage of bots actually going through uh, your website? Nothing that's been peer-reviewed. I know in the summer, uh, Vice Media on the Motherboard blog was talking about the amount of traffic coming through and whether or not it was bots or people, but and no statistical study has come out that I feel comfortable kind of hanging my hat on. Uh, and that, that's sort of the problem with a lot of the media outlets we have that cover tech and social media is that they just sort of run with whatever they have, uh, regardless of whether or not it's been fact-checked or peer-reviewed. Yes, that's a good point. Uh, you could literally make up a stat now and be quoted as an expert, and then this stat could be used everywhere. So be careful. You don't want to do that in this podcast. It's such a popular one. Um, so joke aside, apart from that, what else did you foresee in this book? I think the the issue going on now about brand safety and whether or not it's worth putting your money into digital in the first place uh, is something that only now P&G and... Uh, Martin Sorrell, who you know is the head of WPP, has started to say, uh, "We don't really know if this is worth worth it. We don't really know if the return is there." You know, we we did a study with PNG where they pulled most of their digital advertising and didn't even notice a change in their purchases or you know the purchase behavior of their customers. And so we, I talked a lot about that in the book. Of you know, I, I'm, I was saying this back in 2011. 
it's still not clear what exactly the dollar value is of an advertisement on a social media platform. That That's not to say that you shouldn't do it, but it's just not clear. And here we are in 2018 going against 2019, still having that same discussion. Yeah. And this is a big issue. I believe that a lot of marketers tend to think that, you know, digital marketing is so great because you can measure everything. Uh, that's complete bullshit. You cannot measure everything. Um, it's incredibly difficult and it, it is impossible, I believe, in today's technology to be able to track every single movement of every single customer since they ever thought about your brand for the first time. And therefore, it's impossible to calculate the true cost of acquisition because you don't know exactly the amount of channels they've been uh, exposed to and, and all of that. So those, uh, I think it's DHH from Basecamp in one of the first episodes of this podcast who mentioned that a few times, you know, when you know that it's, it took you, it cost you $7.96 to acquire every customer, something is wrong. You cannot be as detailed as that when it comes to, to your costs and revenues. No, it's, it's very true. And I think that there's a problem uh, that comes from having so many of these brands and advertising agencies run by MBAs uh, where, and this is you know not to say that they're bad people, but if you have an MBA, your training is to quantify everything. And so we've gotten into this vicious cycle, at least in the advertising and digital world, uh, where we're just collecting data for data's sake without actually looking at the bigger picture. So we drown ourselves in in all of these useless data points. And then just one thing, you know, we talked about, you can make up something and people repeat it for true as it's true. And let me give you my favorite example of that. Uh, how many times have you heard that a customer has to experience something six or seven times before they start to remember it and, and act on it? I probably heard it six or seven times already. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there is, there is nowhere uh, that backs up. There's nothing that backs up that study. Um, you can find that quote repeated in pretty much every major marketing book that's come out in the past 10 years, but there is no study out there uh, that supports that. There's also this uh, Henry Ford quote that he allegedly said um, that um, if I had asked my customer what they wanted, they would have built fast, I would have built faster horses. Um, the, he never said that. Um, so that's another example of bullshit and uh, that you hear. And I think uh, who said that? I'm not going to remember now, but um, I interviewed someone quite recently and who mentioned that uh, Mark Ritson, Mark Ritson from Marketing Week, he mentioned a few times that if you mention this stat, exactly as you mentioned it, uh, or like if your brand agency or digital agency mentioned this stat and another one and another quote, then you know that they are bullshit and you need to, to move to move from them. So it's a great way to test whether the people you're talking to are full of shit or not. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of Mark and also of Bob Hoffman's and uh, they're absolutely right. I mean, there's there's also the other one of 50% of the advertising I spend is wasted, but I don't know what half. Yes. He never actually said that either. <laughs> oh. The guy who said that, uh, I think his last name was Wanamaker, most of his empire was done through retail stores that were built entirely off of advertising. But yet here we are like over a hundred years later and a lot of tech people will tell you that quote uh, as a way to sort of justify the spend on social media. Yes. Yes, exactly. Right. So we use this quote as an excuse to say, well, you know, social media, it's an obscure channel. It's a long-term thing. You can't really measure it. On the other hand, if, you can, there are ways to, to measure uh, how much you're spending and how much money you're making uh, on the other hand. You don't really know exactly which channel contributed uh, to each percent, but you have, at least you should have an understanding whether, whether you're making money or losing money uh, in, in your investments uh, in marketing. Right. So I think we've, we've painted the picture pretty well of why um, what are companies doing wrong when building a brand? You said that they're focusing on useless data instead of, instead of great customer experience, right? Um, so what else is wrong in the way companies are building brand a brand at the minute? I talked a lot about this in uh, the new book, Privacy and How We Get It Back, where we develop uh, these customer personas of people that may or may not exist. And we use the data to kind of justify that we think those people exist. And then we create these advertising and marketing techniques to reach those people, even though that person doesn't exist. So for example, I talk about um, a customer persona based around a young girl named Sloan who likes NPR. And so 
that little piece of information is then used to infer that there's lots of women just like Sloan in this age range that also like NPR, and therefore we have to craft and tailor all of our tactics to reach that person. I just think that if you have a good enough product, the persona might be useful at, at the top of the funnel to help kind of steer your efforts. But uh, we waste so much time chasing these phantom customers and not focusing on the experience of the customers we already have. I mean, the trick to it really should be to have your current customers doing all the marketing and advertising for you instead of trying to go out there and constantly acquire people that may or may not exist. Yeah, and, and I admire HubSpot for a lot of things, but I don't admire them for the way they manage to make every marketer believe that you need to come up with some fake persona template in order to do marketing right. And um, I had Adele Revella, who's um, the uh, the owner of the Buyer Persona Institute on this podcast. I had uh, I had the pleasure of talking to her a few a few weeks ago, and she mentioned this exact point. It's instead of trying to create those fake personas based on nothing but you know Google search and some inspiration from I I don't know where. It's much better to to build buyer persona based on your true buyers, people who are buying from you and basing those profiles based on real data, interviews with people and all of that. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you a great example. So um, with the privacy book, I decided to do something different in terms of the marketing because at heart, I'm a word of mouth marketer. And so almost 99% of my efforts have been based entirely around people that are interested in privacy that I've already talked to and turning them into advocates for the book and passing around the the book is a free PDF. And I found that in the brief amount of time that I've been doing it to be more effective than when social media is bullshit came out, uh, where I was running around and doing television and doing radio and uh, just trying to get as much media coverage as, as I possibly could to sell the book. Yeah. Giving stuff for free and word of mouth is it's just based on, on first principle of people and, and getting their trust. You can't really go wrong with that, but help me, help me understand something. And it's something I've been talking about on this podcast for a while. I don't believe that word of mouth is a channel, right? I think it's completely bullshit to, to treat it as a channel. I, I believe that it's the consequence of good marketing and a good product. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I, I think that uh, like, like anything in marketing, if I can make a buck off of it, I will try to turn it into a channel and, and then from there an industry. Uh, we saw HubSpot do that with inbound marketing, and I think that word of mouth, especially since the viral marketing craze kind of took off a few years back, has also been pushed into a channel, but it's not. You're, you're absolutely right. It's just if you do your job right, people will talk about the product. Right. So we talked a few times over email, um, and I asked you, you know, what will be your, your alternative, what will be your solution to... Like to building a brand, building a great experience and letting people control this, like letting them run with it instead of you trying to control everything. So you came up with very, very interesting ideas and two in particular. So can you talk me through the first one uh, when you think about, you know, a model where you can actually pay customer a small amount of money in exchange for their time and attention? Well, the good news is that it's coming. Um, so it's definitely not hypothetical. So how, how I at least envision it working, and um, I could be totally wrong on this, could be, let's use my comic book, for example. Uh, the comic sells for $2.99. It's, it's exclusively available on Comixology. So since that's an Amazon platform, they already know who's going to buy indie comics and who's not going to buy them based on purchasing behavior. So how it should work is I should be able to go to Amazon or Comixology and say, uh, look, you have this data of indie customers. I will pay them instead of wasting my money on Facebook ads and getting potentially yeah. fake click-throughs, uh, I will pay these customers 50 cents. And if that converts to them actually purchasing the comic for two ninety nine, I come out ahead on that deal. Why would I not do that? And you have the data to actually support it. So uh, there should be a very smooth process like that where you would go to someone who acts as a data broker, whether it's an Amazon or preferably an ad agency or uh, someone that, that's not creepy, like a lot of the tech companies who can facilitate that arrangement between you and the customer. Uh, if, as long as you're making money off of the exchange and you know you're actually talking to a real person, why wouldn't you want to do that? Right. So let me understand what you mean, because it sounds so simple, it's almost weird. Um, so let me rephrase it in my own simple, simple language. Um, I am... Um, 
a consumer. I mean, I'm a person, but a lot of brands will treat me as a consumer because I do consume. I have money in my bank account most of the time and I, I can spend money on things. So instead of um, sharing against my will, most of my like interests, most of my, uh, you know, what I like, what I don't like, my purchase behavior in the past, my purchase history, I would control that and choose who has access to this information in exchange for a reworld. That's right. And I think that that's going to take a lot of different forms. Uh, my, due to my own political bent, I preferred that it was a regulatory agency or a government agency that helped uh, to facilitate that so that there was no profit motive on the part of a data broker to to do things that might be underhanded. But I know some people may disagree with that and say, no, Amazon should facilitate that. So um, yes, basically there would be someone filling the role of the data broker who would come to you and say, look, I know you're really into cars. Uh, these people will pay you in exchange for you looking at ads for cars. Uh, would you like to do that? But they will also pay you in exchange for having access to your information. That's right. So you, the, the thing I talk about in the privacy book is that you should be compensated for your data. So um, how that would work, for example, is something like a Facebook, where if they're going to access all your data in exchange for using the platform for free, uh, that you should be entitled to a license fee of some kind that says, you know, we at Facebook pay you $365 each year in exchange for having access to say that to do X, Y, and Z with. <laughs> Have you talked to Facebook about this idea? Oh, uh, we've, so, okay. They are already having this discussion. Like, so what I'm proposing isn't new on both fronts, both on the part of having someone serve as a data broker, having you go to someone like Marvel comics and saying, all right, look, I, you know, if you advertise me, if you pay me, I will take a look at whatever you want. Um, that both of these discussions have been going on since about 2000. Uh, and right now it's not in Facebook's best interest to do that for obvious reasons in terms of their profit motive. However, um, especially now overseas in the European Union with GDPR coming out, uh, they're going to have no choice, I think, to start moving more and more to this kind of model because with GDPR, uh, it's now firmly established that the citizen has control over their data, whereas in the United States, we don't uh, we don't quite have that just yet. So I do think what will happen is either Facebook will give you some kind of license fee or probably more realistic is that you would pay, like, let's say $8 a month in exchange for an advertising-free version of Facebook. Yes. And, and I think that's what's going to happen. And, and not a lot of people are able to to think ahead like you are. And I know you said that it's not your idea, novel idea in your, in, in your mind, but it's sincerely the first time I've ever heard that particular aspect mentioned, um, which is quite interesting. So I suspect a lot of listeners wouldn't have heard of this. Um, so in this world, then it means that people have control uh, in their data. Uh, we do control a lot of things, but we certainly don't, don't control our data about us. And as you say, GDPR, which is the new law in, in Europe um, uh, that is going to be enforced, I believe, in April, if I'm not mistaken, or in May, um, is going to change a lot of things for companies. Have you seen some companies using a, some sort of like a similar model in their business right now? To protect themselves from GDPR or to compensate? Uh, sorry, like, yes, to compensate, uh, to compensate consumers in exchange for access to their data and, and to be able to talk to them, basically. People, so since the privacy book has come out, people have sent me uh, a few links, but nothing, I haven't seen anyone substantial doing it. Uh, that's not to discredit the sites I have seen where they're saying, hey, you know, if you come in to enter information, we'll, we'll give you a couple of dollars. But uh, no one that I would say is a household name is really doing it. And I, I think that that's uh, really what I'm looking for. However, I can give you another example that is out live and in the wild, and that's with the basic attention token uh, that's been pushed out by the people behind the Brave browser. So uh, how it works is you would download the Brave browser, and as you surf the web, uh, it keeps track of your time that you spend on sites, and it says, okay, your time is worth X dollars, and the dollars is paid out in the form of basic attention tokens. And you can use those tokens to give it directly to a company or uh, a media outlet 
in exchange for not having to see ads. Because what Brave will do is it basically blocks out all advertising. So it creates a one-way relationship between you and, let's say, like the media company that you're visiting on the web. And so there's things like that that are out there right now. And I think as that starts to roll out to more and more people and we're getting more comfortable with cryptocurrencies is really when you'll start to see this uh, take off. Yeah, I, I think it might just take one big, big name to uh, to take a, a gamble and uh, and do it for, for the others to follow. Um, so that's a very interesting thing. Um, how would you how would you start as a small company? Like, what type of ideas would you recommend um, companies to, or even individual startup founders or marketers to implement that will go towards this? You know this ideal of having people uh, getting control um, of their data and, and how companies use them. I think the infrastructure uh, needs to be put in place. So, I mean, if you're starting up and looking for a business idea, being a data broker is probably an, an excellent idea. Um, I think that right now we'd have to come in the form of something like the basic attention token. So, uh, you could give the customer X tokens in exchange for them viewing. Let's say, again, I'm going to go back to the comic book because that's the thing I'm not proposing right now, where I can give you like two basic attention tokens in exchange for looking at my stuff and looking at my comics. So the cryptocurrencies are out there right now for businesses to exchange with their customers. But when we're talking about percentage of actual customers that probably use crypto versus people that might have only heard of it, it's still small enough where I think the infrastructure needs to develop a bit more before I would dive headfirst into something like that. Right. And I'm, I'm aware that, you know, as a, I've done a lot of user research in, my, in the past, customer research and panels and all, um, there are a lot of services out there that allow you to have access to, um, to people and ask them questions. Um, you know, you can send them survey, ask them their preference of their perception of anything or their knowledge of anything. You can literally really ask them anything you want. Um, I feel that this is kind of the MVP version of version 0.1 of what you're describing, you know, um, but I, what you're thinking about is really kind of a much widespread, uh, instead of having a f handful of people opting into those services where they pay, uh, they are being paid for their knowledge or, or sharing their preferences. Basically, everybody can have access to it uh, and any services that they use would use this system. That's right. I mean, what I talk about in the privacy book is that the idea, the general idea that we have privacy or control over your data right now is just not existent. Uh, things like GDPR will, will help to fix that. But the system I'm describing, and which has been described in the past by people like Jerome Lanier and other, uh, I hate, I really hate the term futurists, um, but other futurists, for lack of a better description, I, I think that, that that's really what will help us manage the situation where there is no, there is no privacy, but now uh, we can take control of our data by monetizing it and saying, listen, um, I have no problem giving you my information in exchange for X, Y, and Z. So it's not about getting our privacy back because we are not going to get it back. It's more about trying to control a bit more who's going to have access to our data and, and what they're going to do with it. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I talked about in the privacy book is, uh, so for example, when we talk about like government spying on people in the United States, that's been going on since just before World War I. And uh, it's been cyclical in terms of people getting upset about it. And then the government backing off and then something happens and the government goes back to doing it. So uh, the position I take in the book is that you can't stop these large entities like the government from collecting your data. But what you can do is we can look at all the data that's not being collected by the private sector. And that's really where we can start to make these these changes. So, yeah, I, I think the privacy thing is uh, was a nice temporary blip on the radar screen. And uh, now we just have to manage what we have. Right. So moving on from the privacy, uh, this first idea you had um, to the second one, um, and we are still talking about like how to build a brand that makes sense that people would connect with. Um, you're making the point that, you know, we should get as company, we should get out of the way. Right. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think people trying to put their company first in ahead of the product. And most people just don't give a shit about the company. Um, yeah. And there, there's no this myth of Customer loyalty that a, you, know, you will have a customer for life, I, I think is a nice idea, but it, it doesn't ring true. If someone comes along with a better product at a lower price, they're, they're going to sweat. I mean, the majority of your 
customers are going to switch. And so to me, the product is everything. And we've sort of moved away from that. You know, we, we've seen companies like Google and Facebook and everyone mirroring the tactic of, oh, well, you know, Google is friendly and cuddly. And therefore, if my company is friendly and cuddly, I'll have customers for life. And I just don't think that's the right approach. I think it, it all comes down to, is this product good enough where the customer is going to go out and talk about it without you prompting them? And that in turn will drive the growth of the brand and then the growth of everything else. So right, right now we just sort of have that a little backward. So what, what, what do people really give a shit about? They care about money. I mean, listen, people are not rational. Um, I'm working on, <laughs> working on a new book that's called Don't Be Evil, uh, A Guide to Being a Successful Human. And what I found is that most marketing and business books sort of operate on this belief that people will behave rationally. And it's just not the case. Like throughout human history, uh, humans are irrational creatures. And so this idea of if I do X, people will do Y really doesn't work when it comes to marketing. Like people are going to do A, B, and C before they even get the Y and they're going to behave in ways that are unpredictable. I, I think through Stephen Blank, who's a professor at Stanford, said no business plan survives first contact with a customer. And so we really have to, we really have to get away from this belief of you know, the company is the thing, or if I do this, then people will do this. It just doesn't work that way. Instead, what you have to do is look at what people care about most, and it's it's money, and it's sex, and it's their family. Uh, and if it's not any of those three things, then they don't care. Like they're, You might think you have them as a loyal customer, but if you find out that there's this big scandal going on at the Starbucks, people are going to go and switch their preferences uh, to the coffee shop down the street. Like they don't, they don't have that loyalty. They think, What's what's in it for me? And if you're not answering that question, you're losing out. And how do you convince those, you know, picture those 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 managers and and C-suite uh, executives and and the board of directors of those companies wearing suits and being very serious about their company and how it's it's so important to have a brand and have people love loving you know loving this brand. How do you convince them to to get out of the way? Uh, I would like to say you can't. Um, <laughs> because and the reason why I say that is because um, everything that I talked about in social media is bullshit is, is quickly approaching 10 years, right? I mean, we're not too far away from that book turning 10. Uh, and it's now 2018. We're still talking about all of these, these problems. So I, I don't think you can convince all the people of it. But if someone listening to this understands, oh, well, people are irrational actors and they're going to only behave in such a way that benefits them. Uh, then I think I've done my part. And I think if I get enough people to think that way, then slowly, uh, probably not in my lifetime, but uh, over time, I think that that's where that change occurs. But there's there's no way uh, you will convince people to abandon what's what's a multi-billion dollar industry because they don't uh, they don't want to people don't want to rock the boat. Again, it's all about their security and what's in it for me. Uh, no one wants to stand up and be the person who's like, hey, all of this is wrong because the odds are pretty good that you will be fired within a week uh, of saying that within a corporate infrastructure. So for, for lis listeners who are really into, into this idea, and, and most of them are listening to this podcast, how do you convince them that if they work for a company like this, that they probably need to move on? No. Um, well, you have a choice, right? I mean, so choice A is you push for... Uh, you push for change in little increments because that's if you are a student of history, you'll find that that's how change comes. Uh, if you look at the American Civil War, the issue of slavery was something that was discussed right at the beginning of the country and right when they were putting together uh, the Declaration of Independence and then later with the initial Bill of Rights. Uh, it wasn't just like we decided to have a civil war and then all of a sudden slavery was gone. I mean, it was a discussion that took place over almost 100 years. Uh, before that change occurred. And so choice A is you push for incremental changes wherever you can, or choice B is you leave and uh, you operate a business or an endeavor that that actually follows what people do, and that's what you play to. Right. Let's let's switch gear to uh, to talk more, a bit more about you, because I'm quite interested in your personality and character. And thanks for going through this uh, in-depth, um, diving into those, those, those marketing uh, and society problems and challenges. Um, so you wrote this book called Social Media is Bullshit, which is quite bold. Uh, you talk about privacy, which seems to be a very sensitive subject. You also talked about a book that you're writing about, um, like basically being human and not being evil. You seem to, you like to be contrarian, don't you? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's it's not the bucket I prefer to. That's that's not the role I would like to have. I think that that's definitely a perception thing. Um, but I like to see myself more in the role of someone like a, a Mark Twain or a George Carlin, um, where sure they're contrarian, but what they're actually doing is saying there's a better way, and we can we can actually do it. We can actually follow in the footsteps of creating that better way by doing X, Y, and Z. So I'd like to think that the books are more of a blueprint of there's a better way than what we're doing, as opposed to just being like, everything is bullshit. Um, but yeah, I can, I can certainly understand that, that perception. So based on, based on this, uh, somebody who wants to, to change things is not afraid to, to say things as they are and to fight for, for what he believes in. Can you pinpoint or remember a, a particular event in your life that made you and define who you are today? Oh God. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the big one is probably, um, so I was married for a hot minute, um, during the height of the great recession here in the United States. And so I was a true believer, uh, in social media marketing because in the past I had seen a lot of this stuff being described with a different name. Uh, I had seen it work. So I, for example, got a show syndicated into about 44 million homes in the United States using viral marketing tactics or what would now just be social media marketing tactics. And so when we had that initial wave of the Gary Vaynerchuks and the Seth Godin's and Guy Kawasaki's and Chris Brogan's uh, coming out and saying, you know, social media is this revolutionary thing. I was a true believer, so much so that I built this nationwide breast cancer outreach tour based on a lot of the things they discussed in their books. Uh, and I found in doing the tour, it was a complete failure. And then I took a step back and I, I got a call from this army colonel who says, I heard about this tour that you did um, using social media to raise awareness. Do you think you could do that for us? And I said, sure, but let me do it differently. And let me do it with the way I know how marketing and word of mouth and these different tactics work. And so I did basically the same tour using different tactics and the tour for the, the army colonel, which they're still doing today. People could see it at HighFiveTour.com. Um, that was a big success, you know, so much so that it's like seven, eight years on, he's still doing it. Whereas the breast cancer tour using all of the the social media stuff, or at least the popular ideas that are being promoted by these social media marketers was a, was a complete collapse. And so that to me was, was one of those moments where uh, it changed my life, obviously it adversely impacted my, my marriage, but uh, I realized that I can't be alone in terms of reading this stuff and going, hey, this is bullshit. Uh, and that's why I found when I went out and did the book tour uh, for social media is bullshit. I traveled all over the world and I kept hearing, you know, it didn't matter if the person was from Brazil or if the person was from Russia or the person was from Idaho. You know, they all had the same story of, you know, I read all this stuff and I tried it and all the social media stuff. And it just doesn't work the way that it's, that it's advertised and I feel stupid. And I, I would tell them, no, don't feel stupid because you're not alone. Right. So tell me, that's interesting. Tell me more about, you know, those two different approaches. So you mentioned this approach that was using social media for the breast uh, cancer research uh, tour and the other one for the, the army guy that was another approach. So can you just briefly describe the difference between the two approaches? So the big difference was uh, at the time I had almost a million followers on Twitter. I was part of that. I don't know if anyone remembers this. It's going back some years, but uh, there was a race with like Ashton Kutcher and CNN and Oprah um, to a million, whoever, who would be the first of a million followers. And I was number four uh, in that, wow. in that race. Yeah. So I, at the time was like, wow, I have almost a million people. Um, I bet if I can get even a fraction of them to donate or participate in this tour in some way, it'll be a huge success. And so everything we did was entirely dependent on using Twitter and using the, uh, broadcasting announcements and telling people to come out and meet us. And although we did have a few people come out and meet mm -hmm. us, it was, it was nowhere near the, the numbers that you would think. Uh, and so much so I, I later tested this point where social media is bullshit, where I was like, all right, I'm going to try to sell um, copies of my book exclusively to like these 800,000 people that follow me. Uh, can you guess how many books I managed to sell? Can you, can you give me a, a plus or minus? Uh, it's less than a hundred. Holy shit. Yeah, and that's with 800,000 Twitter followers. So that was the Breast Cancer Tour, whereas with the with the Wounded Warrior Family Support Tour, 
it was entirely based on spectacle and word of mouth. You know, the colonel went to the largest Independence Day parade in America, which is in Philadelphia every year, and he set the Guinness World Record for the number of high fives. Uh, he drove across America in this custom-wrapped uh, Shelby Mustang that people could sign uh, with messages of support to our troops. And so that, you know, using something that was a big visual and using something that people could actually physically engage with offline, I think, was the key factor in making that tour a success, whereas we were entirely dependent on digital with the with the breast cancer tour. The skeptic uh, in me would, would ask you, so, okay, you have 700-something uh, thousand uh, Twitter followers, and, and you said that you try to, to sell this book exclusively, exclusively using this, this network, right? Right, that's right. But what, so what was the message? Was it just a blatant sale? It was like, my book is on sale, buy it, kind of, was it? Yeah, I wanted to do what the brands were doing. Um, so, you know, the brands at the time were very much in terms of just broadcast. And so I said, all right, well, if I have 300,000 people and a thousand of them uh, buy this book, that's pretty good because most books don't sell more than 300 copies in their first year or in their lifetime. And so a thousand copies right off the, right off the Twitter would be pretty great. But uh, so I tried broadcasting it throughout the day. I tried, I didn't do what I was doing now with the privacy book, which we'll get into in a second. Um, I was just sort of tweeting people saying, hey, look at this cool thing. Would you, would you promote it? Uh, whereas with the privacy book, I have a list of about 10,000 uh, people on Twitter that are interested in privacy. And I'm, I'm one by one by one going to each of them, talking to them. Um, it's going to take forever, but, uh, you know, like, yeah, but I'm, I'm doing it with a comic too and it works. So, you know, the, I mentioned that it works because I don't want people to think that I'm entirely dismissing the platform. Um, but there's certainly the right and the wrong way to do it. And so the wrong way was just broadcasting stuff and asking people to tweet about it. And the right way is one by one by one, um, making these connections and, and, and giving the people the book for free and saying, only if you like it, uh, could you pass it on. And this is a fantastic lesson, I think, for, for, for people listening. It goes back to the roots of what I believe, you know, people really crave for. And so they crave for trust and they crave for, you know, human relationships and connections and social media, like any other marketing channels we can talk about in this podcast is just a way to build relationships. And if you forget that people, you know, those numbers that you see on Google Analytics are, are people like you and me, except the bots uh, that you need to remove from that, but they are just people like you and me, then this changes your entire perspective. And so you have a list of 10,000 people and basically every day you contact what, 20 people maybe or something like this? I try to move through 200 a day. Shit. Okay. And um, sometimes I can't because there's some digging in. So, for example, um, I was looking today at the people who run the RSA conference, and they don't have the best Twitter presence. And so, something like that, I have to stop and do some research and find them, and um, maybe hit them up on LinkedIn or try to dig up their email. So sometimes I lose time and I don't get through all 200, but I try to do 200 a day. And you just spend the time to get to know who you're going to talk to send them something personalized enough and then send them the free book. Is that it? That's right. And what I do is I make sure every message is slightly modified. So I do, you know, I do have a template email that everyone gets, but at the bottom of each email, it says, look, um, even though this is definitely, you can tell this is formatted a certain way. Uh, I am a human. I am individually emailing you. And then I give my cell phone number and say for proof of humanity, you know, you're not on any mailing list for proof of humanity. You can give me a call anytime. And so, um, I do do that. One thing, one thing I want to point out though, is that I think people don't understand time when it comes to marketing. I, I think that there's this belief of, uh, wow, I can, I can get everything I want right now within three months. And, uh, I take the long view, particularly when you, you sell a, a luxury item, like a book, because no matter how cheap a book is, it is a luxury item because a lot of people don't read. Um, you, you have to understand that it, it takes months if not years, to really build up a presence and get people. Uh, you want to sell a million copies of this thing, it's going to take you two or three years to do that. Uh, and step one is, you know, getting that list and going down it and making those individual connections. So, so far, I can guarantee that you've, you've kept on track of your, of your metrics uh, on sales. And so 
How many people have you contacted so far? Uh, on the privacy book, I have contacted over a thousand and I have sold maybe 500 so far. So I'm doing a little better than half, which is good because every hundred people you contact, this is true uh, with any kind of direct marketing, you know, maybe 10 of those people are going to get back to you with interest. And maybe one of those people are going to be super excited and become your, your biggest fan. And so I'm, I'm actually doing, I'm actually outperforming what my expectations were uh, so far. So it looks like maybe around for every 100 people you you contact, you get 50 sales. Yeah, it's uh, it's been pretty good. But in my the reason why I think it's working as well as it is, is uh, I'm researching these people, and uh, you know, like I'm relatively certain that this is a book they would buy. Like it is, so it's not some random random pitch. I'm doing the same thing with the comics. I have a separate spreadsheet of all of these people that, that have either used the comics hashtag or have tweeted about comic books. And uh, I, I research them and I make sure, okay, they like independent comics that are not from Marvel or DC. And uh, I think I have a good probability of a sale. So there, the, the sales are more following that one to 10 to 100 ratio that I mentioned with the comic book, whereas with the privacy thing, um, it's performing better than I expected. And how much are you making per book on the privacy book? Oh, I don't make much at all. Uh, I make like less than 20% um, on the book. The, so the big secret, and I talk about this in social media is bullshit. Uh, you don't make money from books. Uh, it's nice to have. It, it's something, it's a source of pride. Um, but you, if you are signed up with like a major publisher, even in this case, a smaller publisher in the UK, um, you are not, where you're going to make your money from is, is the speaking engagements and the consulting. And since I don't do any consulting anymore, I make most of my money from the speaking engagements. So it's kind of great. Uh, as I, you know, I mentioned, I had 10,000 of those contacts. I only need six of them, um, six paid speaking engagements, and then I'm okay you know, financially for the year. So uh, as long as I get those six from that 10,000, I'm great. And so that's that's sort of a lesson for anyone that is interested in writing a book is you, you will not, unless you self-publish the thing, you will not make money from it. But it's a fantastic way to build credibility and trust. And this is kind of what you're, you're, the point that you're making, right? So I'm so glad you didn't ask me to, to pay you for your time on this podcast. Yeah, no, I, I charge quite a bit. So, How much do you charge uh, per speaking gig at the minute? Uh, at least $11,000. Nice. And how long do you speak for? I only speak for about 45 minutes. And, and the reason why is because I found with, with the topics I present... Uh, there's a lot of questions. And so I really try to do more Q&A than I do speaking because my attitude is um, at that rate, I'm going to buy books for everybody in the room. So they're already going to come go home with a copy of the presentation I already did. So I think it's more valuable to talk and say, look, uh, what questions do you have that I can answer right now? And, and doing that has led to some really interesting things. Like I was invited to speak to uh, the the chief you know, the top staff for Subaru in North America uh, because I did a Q&A format at a presentation that they were watching. And so I try to answer more questions than I do actually speaking. Well, thanks for being honest with me and being transparent uh, about everything so far. I'm trying my hardest to ask tough questions, but you don't seem to be phased. So I, I'm all for trend. That's, I think, part of the problem with the marketing advertising industry is it's in, it's in our interests often to not be transparent. And so with me, I mean, like, if you look at my site, bjmendelson.com, I'm open about everything. Yes. And I would recommend listeners to, to go to your website, bjmendelson.com, because your copy, as I mentioned to you before we started to record this interview, is, is pretty refreshing and, and pretty good. Um, so thanks so much uh, for spending the time to answer all my questions. I have a few left uh, that I usually ask uh, every single uh, of my guests. So what do you think marketers and listeners uh, should learn today that will help them in the next 10 years, 20 years, or even 50 years? Uh, understand persuasion and influence, I think is the most valuable thing you can do. And I know those terms have been horribly abused, but uh, you should absolutely read you know, books like Influence by Robert Cialdini. I mean, the book is 40 years old at this point, uh, but that's the book on influence. Um, and even today, there's, there's more um, readable because Cialdini's text is not uh, it's not easy to get through, but it's worth it. But there's books like Captivate by Vanessa Van Edwards. And then there's the, the guy who writes Dilbert. Uh, I think it's Scott Adams. You know, he writes about 
persuasion and influence. And, and that to me is the most valuable thing because once you understand that, you realize, oh, oh, wait a minute. Um, nothing, nothing works the way we describe it on paper because people don't behave rationally. They, they behave irrationally. And so it's in my best interest to learn what they care about most you know, and answer that question of what's in it for me. If you can do that and you can do that over a sustained period of time, you're golden uh, when it comes to marketing. But unfortunately, we don't we don't teach people that, you know, we're too busy teaching like Facebook ads. Yeah, I feel like uh, I'm listening to myself speaking. Uh, so it's great to hear to hear a very famous speaker. Uh, you know, in, in conferences all over the world to be able to, to vouch for what we've been fighting for in this podcast. Uh, I'm teasing you, by the way, I'm not, uh, I, I know that you're um, down to earth, um, which is great. So what are the best, what are the top three best, you know, resources you would recommend listeners outside of the one you already mentioned? So books, books is definitely one. Um, I found, yeah, I was really hesitant about their service, but BuzzSumo is actually where I was able to generate those lists that I mentioned. So right now on my desktop, I have about 15 spreadsheets, um, each with different categories of people uh, and each with about 10,000 entries that all came from BuzzSumo. Some of the data is garbage. Um, you just have to use your head and look and look at some of the entries and realize, oh, uh, this person might have ran about comic books like once in the past four years. Uh, and it's a bogus entry, but uh, I do I do highly recommend Basumo. I am pleasantly surprised by their product. And like I said, I, if you look at like Noah Kagan's stuff on the web, it's very easy to be skeptical of him and some of the stuff that he says. But it, it's actually a good product. So uh, that would be number two. And then number three is just uh, plain old YouTube. I know that that sounds very basic, but I think it's important to understand the fundamentals of some of the new technology that's coming out. Uh, things like augmented reality and virtual reality and cryptocurrencies. And YouTube is a really great resource to actually listen to lectures from people that have talked about it. So, for example, like Jerome Lanier's books, if, if I'm being blunt, uh, kind of suck. And they do. I mean, they're not they're not readable. It's not written in any intelligible way. Uh, but he's a great speaker and he's very he's very intelligent. And I have a lot of respect for him. And so I found by watching his lectures, I learned more from him than I did reading um, his numerous books, which I really struggled to get through. So YouTube is great for things like that. And if you if you are a young marketer or someone who is maybe changing careers into marketing and you're curious about VR, I mean, there's so many resources on that on YouTube and they're all, they're all out there for free. All right. So that's resource number two. Yeah, well, the books is number one. Uh, BuzzSumo right. is number two, and then YouTube would be three. Um, okay. if, if you want a bonus one, I, I think that just reaching out to academics in marketing, uh, most of them will write you back if your question is succinct and um, it makes sense. Uh, sometimes people write them these these long screeds, which you absolutely shouldn't do. But I mean, there's people out there like Dr. Jonah Berger uh, and Dr. Duncan Watts, who before he was even writing books, you know, I was emailing them with questions and uh, they were always good in, about getting back to me. So um, don't hesitate to actually ask for help from people that actually research this stuff. Yeah, I think one of the, the points you're making here is really that information, all of the knowledge you need is available for free if you know where to look, um, which is which is very interesting. Uh, just to make a, a small comment, though. Uh, so Noah Kagan is not behind BuzzSumo. He's behind sumo.com. Buzz. Yeah, Bussumo is uh, is uh, led by a guy called uh, Steve Rayson, uh, whom I met. Uh, he was a really nice guy, and they are a very small team, I believe. I, I think they've grown recently, but they are bootstrapped, and uh, they probably have less than ten people still. Uh, but yeah, it's a great software. I completely agree with you on this. Um, so, BJ, you've been an absolute pleasure to talk to today. I really mean it. Uh, a lot of interesting ideas there, and a lot of transparency which we definitely need and i definitely crave um where can listeners connect with you and learn more from you uh, bjmendelson.com and if you go to the contact page um, there's a phone number there that's that's actually my cell phone number so if you text that number with the word sheetrock i will send you free pdfs of the books that we talked about in this presentation and honestly that's you know i don't i don't have a mailing list i don't i'm too lazy for that um so if you want to text me, you can text me. If you want to email me, you can email me. And it's just bjmendelson.com. 
Oh, I'm gonna text you, just for the sake of it. <laughs> right, BJ, it's been uh, once again a, very, a pleasure to talk to you, and thank you very much for your time. Yep, thank you. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email lists uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a, as a one-to-one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get and I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests and perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday so don't be afraid to subscribe I'm not going to spam you and you can always unsubscribe for sure if you wish the second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback we know that this show is not perfect yet and we always Uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends your colleagues or whoever might like it and also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast because if you leave us a five star review it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker So thank you so much once again and au revoir. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content is coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.